Welcome to the official Espigan podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley. And good evening, everybody. It's late at night. Well, late at night for me. Uh, nine o'clock in the evening, and we are struggling here to make sure that we get a little bit of a head start to be timely so that we can bring you JPGN Journal Club. JPGN Journal Club, Espigan Journal Club, I should say more particularly, is hosted by Dr. Andreas Yenke. And Andreas has picked out two articles from the April number of JPGN this year that he thinks are particularly worthwhile. The first that we're going to discuss comes from Sweden. Prevalence and risk factors for post-discharge feeding problems in children born extremely preterm. As somebody who is by birth a quarter Swedish, I'm certainly happy to know that um, my people are doing good work. But Andreas, why are they? Why do you think that this is good work? Well, um, the Swedish um, are very good in in, in registries, so they have a large national databases where they collect all kind of medical data. And this is the same with this study. So it's uh, registry data and um, it basically um, contains um, all extremely premature born infants. Um, this is below one kilogram of birth weight. And if you are born before 27 weeks of gestational age, and um, the authors included all babies born between um, 2004 and 2007. And this includes um, a little bit more than 700 um, infants, which is already quite a large number. And they also had some kind of follow-up of quite a large number of these patients with uh, 2.5 years. So um, and they, they managed to get some data on at least um, 432 patients. Now that's quite, that's quite a bit, but that's, that's after you call out the ones who didn't take part or whose parents didn't take part and the ones who died and the ones who had chromosomal or other metabolic disorder abnormalities or who had intraventricular hemorrhage or periventricular hemorrhage grade three or four. And how many were they left at, left at the end of all that? So, so at the end, 347. 350. So call it half of the original participants, 700 to 350. Yes. It's still quite a lot. Yeah, and importantly, I mean, 216 died. So it's almost three-quarter of the survivor cohort, ah, which yes. is okay. quite a large number. So they um, categorized um, the feeding problems based on um, the ICD codes they received. So this is quite reliable. So, so we won't have some kind of overestimation. So it's a little bit even more in the direction of underestimation. Mm -hmm. So um, we can work with a very reliable number of premature infants with the feeding problems. How did these feeding problems manifest? How did they pick them up? Well, in they, they, they went to a doctor, to a dietitian, and then the ICD diagnosis is put into the system. And this is then, re then, then saved or transported to the registry. So these kids have all been reviewed in their growth yes. and development by a dietitian. 
by a dietitian or a pediatric gastroenterologist or or some kind of um, specialized person in this area. Somebody concerned with nutrition and with growth, yes. and not just with neurologic development. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yes, absolutely. So what they found is that first of all. These extremely premature infants have an extremely high odds ratio for feeding problems during the first two or three years of life. So the odds ratio is almost a factor of 200, which is impressive. I'm ignorant. An odds ratio expressed in how likely they are to develop it is yeah. chance of um, one in five, one in... No, I mean, it's, it's the probability is 200 folds of a baby born at term. 200 times the chance of falling off the growth curve, yes. both in terms of weight and in terms of body length. Yes. Of that, uh, whoa, yeah. okay. So, I mean, this this is, this is not new. We knew that already, um, that these um, babies have um, major problems. But what they found is that um, there is a strong correlation between mechanical ventilation, so days, actually days on the ventilator, and the risk for later feeding problems. So they had a quite um, good cutoff of 10 days. So if you spend, as a premature infant, 10 days on mechanical ventilation during the first four weeks of life in the NICU, they had a sensitivity and specificity of about 70 to 75% feeding problems later on. So I think this, mm. from my point of view, is, is a very easy marker to pick, to collect. And um, maybe in the future, and these patients should have some kind of regular visit of a pediatric gastroenterologist or yet dietitian during the first six months of life after discharge. So, and not only an assessment by a neuropediatrician. You mean, so, here you mean in non-Swedish populations because the Swedes have already got that locked down, or? I don't know because I do not work in Sweden, but it does not seem from the paper because um, uh -huh. they also discuss that and, um, and think about this recommendation. So there's work to be done in well there's yeah. work to be done in Sweden. I'll let my yes. relatives know. Yeah. But what's also interesting from my point of view is that um they they were able to just nicely figure out what happened with the baby at birth and then at the end of the NICU stay and then at the age of two point five years. So what's quite interesting is that fifty to sixty percent of the babies lost the weight or, or dropped um, at least one standard deviation in weight and length during the NICU stay. But they were able to pick that up or yeah, to have some regain of growth and weight and length after or during the first two years of life. So I think maybe there is also a chance that if we optimize the nutritional support during the NICU stay, and we do not lose the standard deviations in length and weight until the, the, the time of discharge, maybe the, the catch-up growth later on could be used to gain a little bit more yeah, growth in, in the normal direction. So 
this is just a possibility. I don't know if this is really feasible, but is at least from my point of view also a nice, um, nice finding in this study. Tell me how they controlled for just plain lung disease and the persistence of lung disease. Um, yeah, kids, they, go on. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. So, so of course, mechanical ventilation could just reflect um, more severe lung disease, more work of breathing, which mm -hmm. also then might continue during the first um, one mm -hmm. or two years mm -hmm. of life. Um, of course, since this is a retrospective study, they could not control for that. But I think if we want to implement some kind of screening factor, this is not that relevant. So, of course, we as neonatologists, we also always aim to not ventilate the patients. So we, right. we try to prevent bron bronchopulmonary dysplasia and so on. So, so this, is also, this is already in our mind. But if we just have this, this marker, 10 days on mechanical ventilation, and then you need to see a dietitian or a pediatric gastroenterologist at the age of six months, this maybe could change or improve um, the later growth and um, could prevent feeding problems during the first two or three years of life. Let me spend somebody else's money, Andreas. And let me ask, why shouldn't all NICU discharges, all NICU graduates, be evaluated by dietetic and pediatric gastroenterology specialists? Well, would be a nice idea, but but we do not have enough. Um, that's staff what I meant to by spend, that. That's what I meant by spending somebody else's money. The resources are not there. Here we are then. So we have uh, again information that underlines that kids in the NICU do badly, and that some of them make their way back. And very interestingly, that the ones that do worst are the ones that are longest ventilated. Have I summed that up? Yeah. Okay. And that now we have a, a touchstone, a benchmark to say, guys, if your patient has been in the NICU on a ventilator for 10 days plus, then think about your discharge planning now. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move uh, to the other end of Europe from Sweden to Israel. Well, yes. And, okay, <laughs> keep that geography in mind, Andrews, it's important. Um, I am very pleased to find you recommending an article that says, just biopsy the heck out of them. Yeah, I just picked this article <coughs> for you because it just underlines or underscores the importance um, of the pathologists. I, I never doubted it myself, frankly. Yeah. But, um, but let's it's just, always let's, nice. <laughs> okay, let's give to these, get some let's, compliments. Let's give the people listening in at home or in the car or wherever they may be the title of this article, which is "The Yield of Routine Tissue Sampling in Pediatric Gastrointestinal Endoscopy." Yeah. I think they set up a straw man. Really, I don't think that there's many people who would say that you shouldn't once you're in there with the endoscope and the biopsy forceps, that you shouldn't be taking biopsies. Um, so uh, I'm not certain what was really at uh, being debated here. Well, um, the problem is that there is not a real bunch of good data 
on this statement. So, um, of course, you could just say it's, it's regular common knowledge and you do not need to have any studies on that. But since it's an official um, ASPCAN and even portal group criteria or, or um, recommendation, it should have some kind of strong foundation. And the foundation it's these recommendations are currently placed on come from my point of view from a retrospective 10 year analysis from 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 a study which from from a group which performed less than 80 endoscopies on children per year. So well, that's nothing compared with what the Israelis did. Absolutely. So so I think um, it's it's quite important to have a larger cohort better data to um, support this um, strong statement on doing biopsies on um, uh, non-affected areas. Non-affected appearing bits of yeah, tissue. Yes. So give us the numbers. How many, one year, I remember that, one year for this study and how many? Almost 800. 800 endoscopies. Yes, a yes. lot more upper than lower, but still quite a few. Yeah, I think it's a, it's almost 700 upper and 100 lower endoscopies, um, which is which is normal. At, for example, in our institution, we do, I think, five to 600 upper and 150 lowers. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this is this is the normal correlation, I would say. How many people have you got at your place flexing the scope? Because these people had 10 gastroenterologists. Yeah, we, we only we, we are only three in our unit. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you, you, this is already some kind of maybe problem in this study, apart mm-hmm. from this study being also retrospective. Mm-hmm. So you have, I think, eight different endoscopists, and oh. only one pathologist. So well, the assessment whether the um, the mucosa appears microscopically normal or not is very subjective. I mean, is it already erythema? So is there some redness? Is this some some hyperplastic tissue or not? There are always borderline decisions. So and this this is more the case in in upper endoscopies. And I think this is also nicely reflected in this paper since um, the correlation between um, the, the endoscopists and the pathologists on the upper endoscopies is just terrible. So, mm-hmm. In other words, the upper endoscopy, at upper endoscopy, folks thought, this is fine, and we'll take a biopsy anyway. And then the pathologist said, hey, guys, you got a problem here. Yes. So, so More yeah. often than the other way around. Yes, absolutely. But but what's quite interesting is that um, that at least in ten to twenty percent of the cases, um, the abnormal appearing mucosa was normal on on pathology. So I think this is also, from my point of view, quite well, that's important. Intri- that's intriguing, and I wonder we're not given a lot of information about how, when a discrepancy like that cropped up, how that discrepancy was resolved. Did they, for example, return to the biopsy block, cut another four or five levels, see if a little bit deeper they might find something? Did they pick up the phone and talk to the endoscopist and say, Joshua, what were you looking at here? Because I can't see anything. Come down and take a look at it with me, huh? 
Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. I think this is this is one major problem of this study. So so we are left with a lot of open questions. So so how many patients had a pathology anyway, and and how were these um, differences resolved? So did they have some kind of conference? Um, mm-hmm. Were they looking through mm-hmm. the microscope together, and in which way uh, they directed the decision? So was it the pathologist? who maybe um, slightly altered his assessment or was it just endoscopist who just said, okay, when the pathologist says it's normal or it's abnormal, we just take it. So Take it like a man. I'm all in favor of that, Andreas. Yeah, yeah. Trust yeah, your yeah, pathologist. Yeah, I can okay. believe that. So, so, so this is also <laughs> okay. some, some so, so at least I think this is something one could pick up from this paper that it is yeah. important that the endoscopists and the pathologists talk to each other and exchange information mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on a more deeply level. So I don't know how it is in our in other units, but in our unit we sometimes provide not very specific submissions sheets to the pathologists. So it's just written six weeks abdominal pain, um, microscopically normal, any signs of inflammation. So it's good to confess. Yes, okay. it's always good to confess, <laughs> even though I'm not Catholic. <laughs> okay. So I think maybe um, if we have these areas where decision making is not that black and white, so it's more a gray area, it's always good to come together and discuss the issue. But nevertheless, it's clear um, that it's very important that we need to take biopsies even from normal appearing mucosa. Well, Andreas, thanks a lot. This was a good session, I think. I learned a lot. I can say that. And I hope that those who are listening to the podcast uh, came away believing that they learned something too. I've been validated and verified, not just on my ethnic basis reasons, but also in terms of you need us. You need us histopathologists. Thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, on a personal um, level, I really enjoy chatting with you on these um, papers. And I hope everyone else who listened to this podcast enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you did... Stay tuned and join us for the next Journal Club in May.